Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Great. It's good to see you today. Uh, Before we jump into, and this is a little Bible trivia help for you, uh, we're about to jump into what is the shortest book of the Bible by verse count. Not by word count, by verse count, just to be technical, but keep that for your Bible trivia uh, game playing future. Uh, Before we jump into that, though, I want to just hit a couple of things in the program. Uh, First off, if I've not met you before, my name is Cody Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we got something big coming up here. This September, Candeo Church is turning 10 years old. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. You know, time, time flies. And yet, just to pause for a Sunday and to look back and celebrate God's faithfulness to us already in these 10 years, and then to dream about what God would have for us, praying for our church to be a faithful gospel presence in the Cedar Valley till Jesus comes back. But uh, we're going to take some time. So mark your calendars. It should be easy to remember. We're celebrating 10 years on the 10th of September, right? Uh, We'll have some special services that day. Don't worry about food. We're going to take care of you that morning. Uh, We're talking about opening up the coffee bar and having that be free. Donuts as well, kids. Mark your calendars. Uh, some, Some food after services and then some fun in the backyard. There'll be bounce houses and games and all that stuff and a lot of things to entertain the whole family. And we just want to spend the day together celebrating, delighting in God together. And so make sure you make a point to be here that day. We would love to have you uh, celebrating with us. There's also some other things going on. Take note of everything else in the program. Park night coming up, uh, some other things. Um, but with all that said, let's, let's jump into Second John. As every time I open to John's letter, 2 John, and the same is true when I read 3 John, I'm always caught by the opening words, the elder. Just a little backstory here. John had a brother named James. They were known as James and John, sons of Zebedee. Maybe you've heard of them before, right? They were fishing with their father when they met Jesus and left everything and followed him. James and John, sons of Zebedee, uh, they also had another nickname, a nickname that Jesus gave them, uh, the sons of thunder, Uh, possibly because there was a moment where they were walking with Jesus and a a village that they were trying to enter into didn't welcome them. A Samaritan village didn't welcome them. And it was their idea to look at Jesus and go, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? They didn't ask Jesus to do it. They're like, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and wipe all these people out? And Jesus is like, no. Let's just keep walking. But the sons of thunder, there's another memorable moment though in their lives, James and John, sons of thunder, uh, where they came to Jesus. And at this point, Jesus's eyes are fixed kind of squarely on the cross. And they ask Jesus, hey, when you enter into glory, can you promise that one of us will sit at your left and one of us will sit at your right? You guys remember this story for this one before? Do you remember what Jesus says? He looks at him and he goes, fellas, and somehow their mom got involved too. I mean, that makes it really messy, but their mom's involved. But he goes, fellas, like, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he says, can you drink from the cup I'm about to drink from? And can you undergo the baptism I'm about to undergo, referring to this life of suffering and bitterness and, and all that that he was going to embrace? Is, Are you ready for that? And 
kind of quickly, foolishly, they throw out back this naive, like, yes, of course, we will. And then prophetically, Jesus responds to this. He says, you, you will drink from the cup I'm about to drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with, referring to, yeah, you will endure a life of pain and suffering. But then he says, but guys, that spot, the, the seat of my right and left, that, that's not mine to give. Jesus told them what was in their future. And if you look at their lives and how it played out, James is the first of all of Christ's disciples to be killed. It's like, it's like a passing reference in Acts 12, if you want to read it, where King Herod arrests him and beheads him. John, on the opposite side of things, outlives them all, watches every one of Jesus' disciples, every one of his friends be killed as witnesses for Jesus. And they tried to, according to church tradition, they tried to kill him. They couldn't kill John. And so they just exiled him. And I'll never forget walking through my New Testament survey class and our professor looking at us and going, which life would you have preferred? Which life of suffering would you have wanted? When I read these words, the elder I hear, I'm the only one left. And a, a somberness hits me. Uh, these words that are being written here, they, they have some weight to it, right? Because what we have here is we have the words of a man who had, probably at this point, he's like in his mid to late 70s, had been walking with Jesus for 60 years, enduring all of the heavenly joys and earthly sorrows that life could throw at a person, and yet walked faithfully with Jesus in all of that. That adds weight, right? But God's grace also was not without effect in John's life. Once known as a son of thunder, we now refer to John, he has a new nickname that we use today. We refer to him as the apostle of love. In just these letters alone, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he uses the word love 33 times. If you look at his gospel, he uses the word love in his gospel 39 times. The second closest is Luke's gospel, 14. He'd been transformed by the love of God and became a person marked by love. I say all of this in, as like a backdrop, right? Like these words written from a mature, faithful, godly father in the faith, an elder for us who is marked by love. It should catch us then when all of a sudden he tells us not to love somebody, not, not, not to welcome them into our homes, not even to greet them. That should catch us. And that's what he does here when he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home, do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. So here's what 2 John is going to do for us, right? 2 John is going to ask and answer a question for us. And this is, this is the question. How should we identify and respond to those who would prop themselves up as spiritual leaders, but yet don't tell us the truth? How should we respond to and identify those who would prop themselves up as spiritual leaders but don't speak the truth? And here's why this matters. Like, you might be sitting here today going like, ah, oh, this is not the message I think I really needed today. Here's why this matters for us. As we're living at a moment in, like, human history where the microphone has never been bigger 
for anybody and everybody to say whatever they want, true or not. Podcasts, YouTube channels, TikToks, blogs, like all this stuff. I mean, our world is full, fuller than ever of a lot of noise, opinions and hot takes. There's never been a time, I think, in human history where we need to be a discerning people, where you and I need help. We need a guide on how to sniff out what is true and what is false. And so that's what 2 John will give us. It provides a filter and a guide for how we should identify and respond to those who don't speak the truth. And so my goal today is to be as always, incredibly helpful and practical. So here's what I've heard. I've heard that the best way to, to spot a counterfeit, like if you're looking at for like counterfeit money, I've heard that the best way to spot a counterfeit is to not look at the counterfeit, you look at what's real. And then you look at the counterfeit. And that's actually what John does. So before we dive into what isn't true, we're gonna look at what is true and remind ourselves of that truth. Verse one, this is what the elder writes to the elect lady and her children, which is a, a metaphor for church, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. There's a key phrase in those first three verses is the truth. John knew the truth. Many around John knew the truth. And the church that John was writing to, writing to knew the truth, right? I know, right, in the world that we live in, I know something that isn't true. There's this popular message going around these days where people will say, well, everybody has their own truth. I'll tell you right now, that isn't true. There is the truth and there is everything else. And here's the beauty. You can know it. John knew it. Those around him knew it. This church that he writing to knew it. You can know the truth. And here is the truth. It's not even about what you know. It's about who you know. Jesus called himself the truth. John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me, right? That's the truth, right? That the only way out of this world of brokenness to the Father and to the eternal life that he offers to us is through Jesus. That's the truth. And when we trust in Jesus, look at these three words. Verse three tells us the reward that we have when we place our faith in Jesus. These aren't wishful words. He's stating these as declarations of truth. Grace, mercy, and peace. No longer an enemy of God, but a child. And I wanna just pause here like if you're finding yourself like looking at those three words, mercy, grace, peace, and you want those this morning, those words do not define your life and you're looking at that going, I want that. 
here's what God asks of you. If you want those things, here's what God asks of you. That you would turn, you'd repent, you'd turn from the way that you're currently walking and believe in Jesus, who's the truth. And that's it. And often when I have somebody that I'm interacting with say to me, I want that, how do I, how do I, how do I take that? How do I take hold of that? I just say, simply, I just think take that step by prayer. When we pray, we're talking with God. So just to stop now, talk to God and say, I do, I, I want that. And I gotta imagine in a room this size this morning with guests in town or different things like that, like there's somebody in here this morning going, I want those words to be true of my life and I've, I've never had them to this point. And if you would, I, I just wanna stop. I'm just gonna pray and you can join me in prayer. All right, can we just pray together? Yeah, God, I know, I know there's somebody in here whose life those words don't, don't fit, at least haven't to this point. Not a person defined by mercy, grace, and the peace that you give. God, this morning, we see sin and brokenness in our life, and we've had enough of it. We don't want it anymore. And we see the promise that you give here. That if we believe in you, Jesus, all that is taken away and what we're given is mercy, grace, peace. And so God, I'm taking you at your word. We're gonna take you at your word this morning. And we say, I believe in you. And we love you. Amen. Here's the truth. If you just placed your faith in Jesus, you have crossed from death to life. Not because you earned it or you deserved it, but as a gift of grace received by faith. That's the truth. Welcome to the family. But now he goes on to talk about not just that this is the truth, but what does it look like to live faithfully in the truth. Pick up with me in verse four. I was very glad to find that some of your children are walking in the truth and keeping with a command that we received from the Father. So now I ask you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. And this is the command, as you have heard from the beginning, that you walk in love. One of the most common metaphors in the scriptures to refer to the Christian life is the picture of walking, which I love. I think that's, that's almost hilarious because there's nothing like incredibly dynamic or world-changing about walking, right? Like if I was to say to you today that your child or your grandchild was going to grow up and be an Olympic athlete, and you could pick the sport, you get to pick it. Like, like what, would, what would be at the top of that list? I mean, for me, it's obvious. Curling, of course, right? Like I watched that and I'm like, those look like dudes I'd wanna hang out with. Like, so, so if I could pick a sport, it'd be 
curling. I think if I went beyond that, it'd probably be like bobsledding. I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought that hard about it. But like how many sports would I have to lift off before, list off before you go, yeah, 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 and Olympic walking. Like, have you ever seen it? It's ridiculous. I mean, it looks like a massive hip exercise because like you got to keep one foot on the ground at like all times, you know, like, but it's really fast and it, it looks painful and, and unathletic. It's, it's all these things, right? But we look at like walking and, it, and it's not like super appealing. Like, like when we, we talk about the Christian life, we'd love to use like other words that sound a little bit better. Like it's a sprint or it's a journey or it's a climb, you know, like, like those words sound cooler. Like when you're inviting something into it, like, like, hey, you want to be a part of this because like, it's, it's, it's adventurous, you know, it's all this. And it's like, and actually the word that God gives us to describe a faithful life with Jesus is a walk. Not dynamic, not uber world-shaping, not impressive, unless you start walking one day and continue each day to faithfully put one foot in front of the other and string together years of doing that. Then you actually get somewhere. Paul used the same language, right? Colossians 2, 6. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. It's a walk. The Christian life is defined as a walk where we are walking, and he uses these three phrases here, that we're walking in the truth, that we're walking in obedience, that we're walking in love. And these three things are interconnected. These three things are essential markers of genuine faith. What he's doing here in these three verses is essentially a remix of all of the first John. I mean, it's like first John summed up in three verses, right? These are the three things that should mark a Christian life. If you claim Jesus and yet do not hold to the essential truths of Jesus, you're a liar. You're not a Christian. And, and, and for, for many, like, belief is the easiest thing to fake, right? Oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. It's like, all right, well, there's a couple other markers, right? Because you can't claim to be in Christ. You can't claim Christ and have zero interest in having him shape the way that you live. Have zero interest in looking anything like him as you walk through this world. If you do, you don't know Christ. Or here's another marker of essential faith, like a, a central marker of faith. If you claim Christ and yet have zero interest in radically loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm not talking about like lip service where you say, no, 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 I love them. Like lip service counts for nothing. Love must be marked by actions. It must look like something. If you claim Christ and have zero interest in radically loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't know Christ. You're not a Christian. This is the truth. And this is what it looks like to live faithfully within that truth, walking in the truth, walking in obedience, walking in love. That's the real thing, okay? Now let's spot the counterfeit. Verse seven then. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist, 
Watch yourselves so that you won't lose what you have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it, it's not just that they don't know the truth, they do not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. So this is what's happening kind of in in their town, okay? The Roman Empire, which had kind of brought together the, the modern known world at this point, of which John is a part of, one of the great contributions of the Roman Empire to the gospel is that they had made travel in the Middle East and in Europe as easy and as safe as it had ever been in human history. So at this point, I mean, that's one of the great advantages of the gospel is that it was able to spread very quickly because the road system that the Romans had put in place for it. The bummer though, is while the road system was in place, they didn't have booking.com or booking.yeah, you know what I mean? They didn't have that. They didn't have that. And so the way that the gospel spread and the way that really like general transportation took place is you relied heavily on gracious hosts to receive you wherever you went. And this was a mark of Christianity and a mark of those who loved Christ was hospitality. If you just read through the New Testament, you see what a a virtuous thing hospitality is, bringing in strangers, welcoming them. And we'll see some of that next week in 3rd John. But that was how the gospel spread was just through the generosity of people opening up their homes and welcoming in teachers, and leaders and missionaries and workers for the gospel opened up their home to help bring the gospel even into their city to build up and to strengthen the church. It was a beautiful thing. And John loved it, celebrated it, praised God for it, that there were people marked by love and hospitality. It just had one downside. It could be easily abused. And this isn't the first time that John has referenced like antichrist, deceivers. You go back into 1 John 2.18, he talks about how there's, you know, the antichrist is coming and many antichrists have come, right? There's, there's many deceivers. He says here, there's many deceivers that have gone out into the world. We don't know much about what this false teaching was and who these deceivers were. You can nerd out on it and learn some words and stuff that I won't bore you with, but one of the things that's abundantly clear as far as what they were teaching that John states, hey, this is, this is part of their lie. And you can see it right here in the, the text, verse seven. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He says the same thing in 1 John 4, 2 about they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This was the essence of the false teaching is that it separated Jesus the man from Christ the spirit, from God. So essentially what they would teach is that the spirit of God descended on Jesus, the man, when he was baptized and then left him when he was on the cross because it's impossible for the spirit of God to die. And the beauty of this teaching, what made it like particularly appealing for people is when you separate the spiritual and the material world, especially with the the hearers around John's time, you separate these two things, you could start going, hey, what Jesus did on the cross, that, that... doesn't bear any significance for you. That doesn't save you from your sins. What you just need is that spirit. You just need the knowledge that it takes to attain that spirit. 
And in fact, this material world, this spiritual world are so separated, you can do whatever you want in this world. You can live however you want. Eat, do, drink, say, whatever you want in this, this material world that we live in, as long as you've got that spirit, you're good to go. It was essentially a you can do whatever you want religion. Just make sure you got the knowledge that it takes to have this. Does that sound appealing? Like, does that seem like a message that would float around in our day and gain some popularity? You can do whatever you want. It's a do whatever you want type of religion. And it was ravaging the church. And here's what John commands them to do. Very simply, three things. Ground yourself in what's true, believer, right? Don't focus on the counterfeit. I mean, there's a reason why he spends so much time talking about what the truth is and not very much time talking about what's false, right? Ground yourself in the truth. Plant yourself in the word of God that is unchanging. Ground yourself in this. But don't be naive. Be watchful. There's false teaching out there. And when you spot it, don't receive it into your home. Don't even greet it, right? Because in, in hospitality, if you were to greet it, to bring it into your home, it would be like you're partnering with that work to help promote it. And John's like, don't do that. Kick that thing out of your town and keep it moving. That was their situation. Now I want to bring it into our world, right? That's kind of in their town. Now let's go to, to our town. A week and a half ago, we had a couple of our own staff members and a, an elder make a trip to Ghana to, to join up with one of our global missionary partners with the Timothy Initiative. Incredible work. Guys, they're planting thousands and thousands of churches. It's wild. And, and we're a part of it. It's beautiful. All over Africa, India, Southeast Asia, a number of places. It's incredible. But while they were in Ghana, they had heard a story about a particular church, not a church that TTI had started, but another church where a missionary had moved to that city, had planted a church, started a new church, and had invested in that church for a number of years. And one Sunday, which can happen, got incredibly sick and couldn't get out of bed to go teach and lead the church. That Sunday, while he was absent, a Mormon missionary came into the church, stood up before everybody, proclaimed their message, and everybody in the church was converted to Mormonism. Kind of a sad tale of what happens when you don't have the strength of plurality and multiple leaders, right? Things like that. But it also was a sad tale about the lack of depth in those believers. And I... I just asked the question, you know, especially with Second John in my mind, just kind of asked the question to myself, like, could that happen here? Like, if all of a sudden our leadership team got wiped out, like, and somebody else came in with a message that was different, would we be able to spot the counterfeit? Have we equipped our people enough to know how to spot the difference? And here's the challenge, guys. It's not just about being able to spot right and wrong. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's how Satan works. Like he doesn't often come with just like something that's just like radically off. We'd be able to spot that from a mile away. Anybody could do that. 
So it's just this small difference between right and almost right. So here's, here's just four tests that I wanna give us just like practically and like how to spot false teaching. And I'm gonna use math symbols, not because I'm good at math. I was just hopeful that this would be memorable. And I'm stealing this a bit from David Andrew, one of our elders had brought this to me in a different form and we kind of reworked it for today's message. But um, here, here's what I would give you is like four tests for false teaching, okay? First one is that false teaching often adds to the terms of salvation, right? There's your plus symbol if you're taking notes. False teaching often adds to the terms of salvation, right? This is Jesus plus something equals everything. And there, there's, there's something in there. If you wanna draw that math equation, like Jesus plus something equals everything. This is when somebody comes to you and says, yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that you have faith, but you need to match that with this. You need to do this to be saved. Yeah, it's, it's faith in Jesus and this to be saved. It's, it's faith in Jesus and pray to this person or do such and such or say such and such or yes, faith in Jesus, but you also have to have this spiritual gift to be saved, right? Jesus plus something equals everything. Often false teaching will come to us with addition to the terms of salvation. Here's what's true. Everything that Jesus offers to us and has for us, he gives to us by faith alone. And by faith alone, we receive everything that Christ has for us. That's the first test. Here's the second test. False teaching often subtracts or takes away from the nature of Christ. This is a key line, understand this. How we view Christ shapes the way that we view the commands of Christ. How we view Christ shapes the way we view the commands of Christ. That's what we see here in this text. When all of a sudden you take Jesus and you strip him from his de deity. Oh, I, I, I will argue with you that he's a man. He just wasn't God. And you begin to strip that away from him. All of a sudden his commands begin to seem more optional, correct? Right, this is like what a sinful world is doing all the time is a sinful world takes Jesus and continues to recraft him into a counterfeit version that is okay with the way that you live your life, that's happy with you no matter what, right? This is when somebody comes to you and they say, well, the Jesus I worship, he affirms everybody. Well, the Jesus that I worship, he'd never send anybody to hell. When you begin to believe things about Jesus that aren't true, when you begin to change the nature of Christ, it opens a million doors. It sets up a million traps. You know, I brought it up earlier in that example of a church in Ghana, um, but Mormonism is another example of this, right? If, if you've ever had like, maybe you have like Mormon friends, like Mormon neighbors, whatever. If you have close relationships with, with those who are Mormons, some, some of the nicest people in the world. Like I, I won't argue with that. And if you ever get together, we did this once. We had, we had some neighbors uh, that invited us over to sing some Christmas carols and stuff. You know, like, like the, the songs that they sing, the, the prayers that Mormons pray, it, it sounds very similar. But understand the Jesus behind it all is radically different. 
Mormons don't believe that Jesus has always existed. They believe that at one point he was born, born of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, and Jesus came into being, and now will exist forever. So when they say eternal, they mean that, but does not mean that he's existed forever. They also believe that what Jesus did on the cross is not sufficient to save you. It pays some of your debt, but the hope that they have in this life is that they are to live the absolute best life that they can and hope that God will fill up the gap. Mormons have a wrong view of Jesus, but sadly, so do many Christians. It's easy to point out there. How about back into the room? A recent survey done by the State of Theology found that 43% of, catch this, evangelical Christians, 43% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. I don't even understand the profession of faith at that point. Like, why would you even claim Christ if you go, he's just a good teacher, he's not God. Like, I don't even understand that. But, but in our age, there are many walking around calling themselves Christians, maybe some in this room that would go, oh, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Because the truth is, we know this, right? Like, Jesus did not come into this world to just be a great teacher and some great example for us. Jesus is God who took on flesh, fully God, fully man, to came, in, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And by faith in him and what he did on the cross, his blood shed, my slate is not only washed clean, and not only am I forgiven of all that I've ever, been, ever done, I have now declared a son of God. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. That's the truth. False teaching often multiplies and misapplies the blessings of salvation. I would also call this the prosperity gospel, right? We do believe as Christians that God desires for us to be eternally and infinitely happy. That's true. But when all of a sudden you add to that and you go, yeah, but accept Jesus and life in this world will be easier for you, be better for you, more lucrative for you, profitable for you, right? Pray this prayer, do this thing, and the, the floodgates of God's riches will pour into your life and your bank account will explode, right? That would be a misapplication, a multiplication of the blessings of God. And it's not true. What's happening in that moment is you are exchanging the truth of God for a lie, like a, a, a vending machine version of God who cares more about your best life now than about your eternal state. And that God doesn't exist. Lastly, false teaching often promotes unnecessary division among believers. There are hills that I would absolutely lay my life down on and die. And as a church, we should fight and defend with every fiber of our being. Because there is truth. Rock solid, can't shake it truth. But when there's teaching that emerges 
that begins to make out genuine believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, as enemies, you are now outside the heart of God. Understand that. I mean, notice what he says here. I, I love this. I mean, it just like we can almost fly through it, but he's, we see this evidence in this book. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. Right? All of us love each other. That didn't even met. Some of them haven't even met. And he's saying they, we love each other because we all stand in the truth. This is what binds us together as God's people. It's not shared common interests and hobbies and affinities or race or language or nationalities or histories or whatever. Like that's not what binds the people of God together. It is that each of us has one hope in life and in death, and that is Christ Jesus crucified risen and reigning, and a gift of mercy now available to me by faith. That's what binds us together as believers. And what God is building is this beautiful, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, century-spanning global church that is to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. That is the mark of Christianity. The world will know that you are my disciples and that you love each other. Which is why we need to be wise here when we start thinking about rejecting some. Because what John's trying to highlight here is, is, yeah, like, there's unbelievers in this world, and I'm not calling you to, like, reject them and kick them out of your house. Let's be a people marked by love and grace. Even if we might disagree with somebody else on a secondary tertiary issue, invite that person to your home. Let's talk through that. Let's engage the lost world around us with open hearts and open arms and open doors, engaging neighbors and sharing Jesus with them and displaying Jesus to them. Let's do all of that. Yet at the same time, recognize there are many who live as enemies of the cross. There's a difference between wandering sheep and wolves. From those who are lost and those who are promoting something that continues to deceive many. Does that make sense? And what's our call here, Second John? It's church. Ground yourself in the truth. Know what's real so that you can spot the counterfeit. But be watchful. There is more false teaching in the world than there is, sadly, truth. More messages of lies that are wrong than truth. Be mindful, like, what are you listening to? What podcasts, what books, what blogs, what YouTube channels, what, what TikTok superstars are you tuning into? Are you even sharing with others and going, hey, I thought this was cool? Do they speak the truth? And when you spot the counterfeit, here's what John would tell us. Don't even bring it into your house. Don't entertain it. Don't even greet it but continue to walk in the truth, walk in obedience, and walk in love. Churches pray. Yeah.
Yes, Father God, thank you for the truth. For the confidence that we have in your word to know the truth. And I do pray for the ability to be discerning as a people. To be able to fix our eyes and our attention on what is true more times than surrounding ourselves with voices that would prop themselves up to be something that would speak really loudly and very passionately, but don't proclaim you. That God, we would purge our lives of the things that are not true. Reject from our lives the things and the influences that don't speak truth and continue to cling to you in all things and to be proclaimers of truth and people who display your truth with our lives. We love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.